Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. Today is the sixth edition of our Tartan Talks series, and joining us is Forrest Richardson of Forrest Richardson and Associates. And Forrest has an exciting project going on near his home base of Phoenix out in Arizona. It is, it's a par three course that hasn't opened yet, but there have already been rave reviews about. First off, Forrest, thanks for taking some time for joining us and just explain to our listeners what Mountain Shadows is and what the process of designing the course has been like. Well, happy to be with you, Guy. Um, really, it's, it's pretty simple to understand. 18 par three holes, and then we have one bonus hole and um, a little bit of the history. Mountain Shadows was originally built in 1961, and it was an Arthur Jack Snyder design uh, right in the heart of Phoenix in a little community called Paradise Valley. And Jack's original design had two par four holes, so it was a par 56, 18-hole course. And in the remake of it, some 50 years later, um, we opted to get rid of the two par four holes, um, which helped the development get a little more land. And uh, we just rolled the dice and said that 18 par three holes would be fun. So it's it's really the, the way I've described it. It's what what's old is new again. All of the concepts that were uh, you know, kind of breathtaking new ideas in 1961 are now back, just being uh, built in a different way. I think for a while, a lot of people in the business and even a lot of customers kind of overlooked par three facilities. With with the time crunch and the demands on people's lives outside of golf, how, how important do you see these facilities becoming? And do you feel like Mountain Shadows can start some conversations about par three courses? Well, it it already has, and the answer is yes. Um, First of all, I am very discouraged when I see, um, you know, we've had closures in the golf business, and some of that is market correction. Most of it is market correction, which is a healthy thing. So, you know, we're seeing a few clubs uh, that maybe are in the wrong areas or the wrong types of clubs close. And um, even though it's painful, some of that's good, you know, for, for the golf course business as a whole. But I do really hate to see the executives and the par threes close because I've been saying for a long time and and a lot of us have been saying that you know this is this is where people learn to play the game uh, it later in life it's where people tend to migrate um, and enjoy the game more and so every time I see the nine hole or the par three or the executive course close to me it's a it's a loss for us in the golf business and um, I think you're you're seeing We've been talking about it for a long time, but you're starting to see people put their money where their mouth is. We're, we're seeing conversions of courses go to smaller layouts, shorter layouts. We're seeing even some of the new remakes and, and the few new courses being built not pursue the par 72, 7,000 plus, 7,500 plus yards. And I, I think that's healthy for the game, and, and, and you, you hit it on the head. This is already start started a discussion um people are really enjoying it larry fitzgerald uh, arizona cardinals was out playing mount shadows here uh, just in the last week and uh, kind of tweeted or made it known that it's it's his his new go-to favorite place in the valley i mean he he was able to get around in less than two hours and had a great time and that leads into my next question explain the footprint of mountain shadows obviously environmental resources are, are scarce in the desert and we just talked about the the resource of uh, time in people's lives how much space does mountain shadows take up and how long do you do you expect it to take for people to play it 
Well, we're hoping on the, the last question, we're hoping it's about two hours, two and a half hours maybe uh, for 18 holes. Um, the original golf course sat on um, about um, 40 acres, uh, and that was Jack Snyder's footprint, and it went through a little community that's been there, about 100 homes called Mountain Shadows West, and then the resort uh, was up at the very north end of the property. And so the, the, the routing um, is goes up one side, and then it leaps into the middle and goes uh, counter or clockwise, and then it comes out and continues on back to where it began. And uh, what we did is we took that 40 acres down to about 33, and um, this is the part that all the superintendents are going to love. Uh, Ron Proach, the uh, superintendent who, who has grown the golf course in and, and has done a great job and who I've worked with now for the last uh, six months or, or more, he has 13 and one-half acres of turf to take care of. So um, the reason we did that is, number one, we have par three holes. So, you know, we when you look at a par three hole, if you're adding up the tees and the surrounds and the approach and the green and all of that, you know, you're you're well under an acre uh, of managed turf. And so uh, for the 18 holes that we have, we're, we're just under 14 acres. You can imagine our water use is low, and it should be because it's very expensive potable water. We have no other source for water. So it was truly the right thing to do, yet when you get out there, you don't really notice that, uh, I mean, they all look like normal par three holes that you'd see, you know, here in Scottsdale, Phoenix. When you're, when you're dealing with an area that tight and limited land and limited water resources, how do you make every hole different? Obviously, go- golf course architects talk a lot about variety. Explain trying to create variety in such a, in such a uh, small space. Well, of course, there's length. So we have, we have holes that go from 70 yards to 200. And, um, and then really the, the soul of a par 3 course is, is all about the greens and the shots to the greens. Desmond Muirhead said many years ago, and I remember him also writing about it, that the par three hole in golf is the only hole that the superintendent and the architect and the PGA staff actually mandate and say to the golfer, you will stand here and you will only stand here and you'll execute a shot to the green and try to put the ball in the hole. Every other hole, the par fours and the par fives, there's so much variety. The player plays to a particular place, and then they have different angles and different shots, and it's very exponential. But on the par three, uh, we all start from the same place. So it's all about the greens. Uh, what what I tried to do is really make the greens um, unique. So as you go around the course, there's a common thread in the landscaping and the bunkering, but the greens are truly where the course shines and, and, and gets that uniqueness. So uh, we have everything from you know, a Redan-like hole and a B-Ritz hole, which is the green with the big swale that kind of runs across it. Um, we have an island green, peninsula green, punch bowl green, plateau green. Um, we even have a, a double green, a shared green, and then on that green I put a little bunker in the back part of the green, sort of very similar to what uh, Belly Bell and George Thomas did at Riviera on number six there, the par three. So the greens are really diverse. They're also diverse in size. So we have some small ones, and then we have a few really big greens. You spend a lot of your time in Arizona and Southern 
California, and I'm taking Mountain Shadows has some unique areas outside the uh, maintained areas of turf. W what are those areas like at Mountain Shadows, and how have you seen those areas evolved on golf courses throughout the, the part of the country you do most of your work in the, in the last few years? Well, these, these areas that we're taking out of turf now and working with superintendents to, uh, and owners and clubs to remove, manage turf, they present big challenges, especially uh, in the, the flatter desert areas where artificial irrigation is required to really you know, grow anything. So the predominant non-turf area here in, in the, the Phoenix area and Tucson area is what we call decomposed granite, which is a layer of uh, finely crushed and sized, um, basically, soil that's, that's a granite, uh, granular soil. And that's what we have naturally. So when you, when you go up into North Scottsdale and you see the courses uh, and in Tucson, that's, that's predominantly the natural desert um, cover. And so at Mountain Shadows, we, we have that that exists naturally, um, and we restored much of that and brought that back. So it's right on the slope of Camelback Mountain, which is an iconic mountain here in the valley. And that's what we find here. In California, depending on what part you're in, in northern Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, different places in the west, it's, it's really dependent on the region you're in of what you can put back. Um, and the concern we have in the west, of course, is, is we don't want to create bad air quality by putting something down that is going to be blown around by the wind and uh, erode and, and cause problems for, for the club. So it, it becomes a very difficult process of what to put down when you're taking managed turf out. And we also have to keep in mind that what we put down, one of the reasons to get rid of that managed turf is not just the mowing and the turf care, but it's also the irrigation. And sometimes when we put something back in, its, in the place of turf, we have to irrigate it, especially if it's trees or shrubs or things like that. So um, at Mountain Shadows, to answer your question, it's decomposed granite, sort of a desert-looking um, uh, terrain for those readers that, and listeners that watch the uh, Phoenix Open at the TPC course in, in Scottsdale. It's, it's basically that terrain, so it's, it's kind of a, a recreated desert. The University of Arizona recently released a golf economic impact report for the state of Arizona. One of the things I found fascinating about it is that 33% of the rounds in Arizona are played by non-residents. What type of reactions do you get when they come to the state of Arizona or even Southern California and see a different style of golf than what they're used to back home? How are those, what are the reactions like and how do you manage the expectations of people coming from different places to play golf in the desert? Well, it's changed in my career. I remember, um, in the in the 90s, um, there was there was a lot of uh, requests to play golf here. That, that they liked the novelty of playing in the desert, but they also liked the parkland, lush green course. So if they, you know, if the visitors coming out from, uh, you know, eastern Canada or the Midwest or, or snow country, what they're coming to Phoenix for it used to be Phoenix Scottsdale. They're coming for the green, lush, you know, golf. But there, there's a different mindset now. People are coming. And they're appreciating that natural desert environment. And I think that the tide has turned, and, and the parkland courses, well, they're still popular here uh, in Phoenix. Um, you know, we haven't built any parkland courses in 35 years or more. So 
all of the, the newer golf and the destination resorts, the places where people come, they're all embracing this more natural eco-desert environment. And, and we're hoping that the bet at Mountain Shadows is that, that there's going to be a, a whole wave of people that are going to like the idea of playing a par-3 course where the game is more equalized, the two-handicap doesn't have as much advantage on an on a 85-yard hole or a 120-yard hole as they might have on a 470-yard hole. And uh, so people of different skill levels can play with one another, and they can still go out and do other things, you know, hike and go to a ball game or spring training or something like that, uh, and not necessarily have to take, you know, that four hours, five hours to, you know, complete 18 holes of golf. You've had a uh, front row seat at some of the great water conservation efforts in the industry with some of the courses you've worked with and some of the things you've seen over the course of your career. How, how neat has it been to, to see the industry adapt to some of the challenges with water in your part of the country? Well, it's, it's been fun. And when I talk about this at uh, seminars and, and conferences and, and, and the GIS show and, and things, one of the things that has always struck me is that um, those of us in the golf industry, the golf course industry, you know, we should be very proud because it's the golf industry that has unleashed and, and been the catalyst for virtually all of the irrigation water-saving technology that we take for granted. So when you go into Home Depot or when you <clears throat> look at a soccer field or a, uh, a road median that's being irrigated, the chances are, are very, very good that the nozzle technology, the controller technology, and all the various uh, technologies in, in irrigation had its birthplace in golf. And, uh, and and most of that, not all of it, but a lot of it, has happened right here in Arizona and California. So it's been fun to see, and, and you know, I've been lucky enough to, uh, for instance, in California, one of the very first decoder irrigation systems was, was uh, put in at a project we did, and some of the technology that we've seen in weather stations and soil sensors and integrated technology, you know, I've been lucky to be able to learn about that, you know, through some of our projects. Um, Mountain Shadows is a, you and I were talking, it's kind of funny, you know, you got 13 and a half acres, but what everyone has to realize, we still have 20 greens, we still have 20 sets of tees, we have all those perimeters, we have bunkers, so even though Ron Proch has uh, a lot less turf to take care of, he still has all those um, nuances that any 18-hole course, uh, you know, would have. But the exciting part is we're using far less water, and the owner is very happy to tell the water company that, um, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to write the check uh, that we wrote three years ago when the course was, was using almost 35 acres of water, um, you know, we're now going to be using roughly a third of that and with better technology. How common is affluent water in Arizona? Are you starting to see more and more of it, or are most of the course is still on potable water? And how do you handle some of the, the financial challenges with potable water when you're on a project where that's the water source? Well, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but in the Phoenix area and Scottsdale area, the, the use of uh, recycled water and gray water is obviously um, very acceptable. We've learned to deal with it. Southern California is the same. It really is an area-by-area, region-by-region um, nuance because at Mountain Shadows, there's just not the infrastructure 
there's no treatment plant within um, any close proximity. There's no infrastructure to bring treated water there. We did look at the potential of recycling uh, some gray water out of the, the new resort and um, in the community, but it just wasn't feasible, and so the direction was to go down to the 13 and a half acres. As far as the cost of effluent, using effluent water or potable water for that matter, I mean, obviously there's costs in the effluent, but we're seeing all sorts of advancements, as, as you know, in turf grass varieties that are better suited to effluent water, such as the Paspalums and, and the better Bermudas. Um, and in terms of the potable cost, I can't think of any golf course um, really that's on potable water where they're paying for it that hasn't probably gone through a significant turf reduction process in the last 10, 15 years. And some of it is not just driven by cost, but it's driven by incentives, as you know, in California, uh, throughout California, incentives to reduce acreage, also up in the in the Las Vegas area. Here in Phoenix, we haven't had the incentive programs, uh, but there are a number of um, courses that, even though they have grandfathered water rights and they're not really paying for that potable water, um, they see the writing on the wall and they know that eventually there could be oversight and as you know, or, or maybe you don't, but I mean, Arizona was one of the very first states to have active management areas and plans for water uh, use on golf courses, which we uh, were very involved with back in the 80s, helping to get that legislation drafted. So even if you're, you've got all the grandfathered rights in the world, you're still required in Arizona, in most parts of Arizona, to only have so much turf acreage. And, that, and that's really helped. It's made us all be better, you know, at what we do. What was it like seeing the design and the installation of the irrigation system on a, on a course that only has 13 and a half maintain acres, yeah, 20 greens? That had to have been pretty interesting to see that come together. Uh, first of all, the, the contractor was Landscapes Unlimited. They did a great job. It's a, um, a Toro irrigation system and a Watertronics pump station. And that whole team came together, and um, and, and, and they they performed well. From my perspective, I think that there was a general feeling going into it, hey, this is going to happen quick, and, um, you know, hey, this is pretty simple. <laughs> and uh, I kind of chuckle because, again, I just go back to the, the reality that there's still 20 greens, and there's still 20 approaches and surrounds and chipping areas, and there's lots of backup heads and little heads and dual heads and we have isolated tees that have small heads on them, and it's it's a very complicated project. Um, I'm not saying it is certainly 13 and a half acres is a lot different than you know when you have 100 and some acres, but um, a lot of that irrigation on the bigger areas when we do courses that are 80, 90 acres of turf, um, you know they're they're pretty big heads, you know, and and um, and they go in pretty quickly. We're maybe pulling pipe and. You know, we're irrigating, let's say, a three-acre par four in pretty quick time, um, whereas at Mountain Shadows, like I said, you still had all those greens, all those bunkers, and, and the drip system, and, and it, it, it's, it's pretty complicated even so. So that's, that's my comment, is I think that going into it, everyone thought this is going to happen quick and easy, and uh, the reality was it's, it's still... It's still got 18 holes. Actually, 19. You know, we have the bonus hole. So, besides getting an opportunity to design a high-level part three course, 
you also got a chance to work on a property that somebody you were very close to worked on before you. What was that like to, to work on the land that Arthur Jack Snyder worked on? Mountain Shadows was always one of Jack's favorite courses. Um, he his his ashes are are, are spread there, and um, his memorial service was held there. And um, he just always loved the place. And um, and and so over the years, Jack and I would visit Mountain Shadows, and um, we'd be asked to come out and opine on something or or help deal with something. And um, he did know before he passed away in 2005 that that there was a good likelihood the course was going to be redone. But we hadn't quite got into any of the plans yet. We'd, we'd only begun to talk about what we were going to do. And it was a very, very long process to, to get in through the entitlements and all the approvals with the, uh, the town and the resort, the big resort that was reconstructed, 180-room resort. But it, it, was, it was a labor of love. It was a joy. I, I knew the course. I'd played the course many, many times as a kid and in high school. And it was fun. I, I kept thinking, I hope Jack's happy with what I'm doing because we're rebuilding what he did. But I, I truly think he would have approved, um, not that we would have had discussions about some things because we always had great discussions, but I think he would have approved of, of the change. And as far as the two par fours, I know he was proud of them, but, you know, they just had outlived their life. Um, they were very short. Nothing wrong with short par fours, but the ability for people to hit wayward shots now with the big clubs and, and um, every once in a while connecting was just making them per- perhaps not so appropriate. Forrest, do you see par three courses done well and done right be a solution instead of a course closure in some cases? Do you, do you see maybe that people are going to start evaluating their land and say that maybe if we do 18 holes, 30 maintain acres, right, that that could, that could be a solution for some of these struggling courses in the future? I do think so, and I think not just taking a course and converting it, but also looking at possibility of taking 27 holes and, and let's say, redoing nine or, or um, even taking 18 holes and creating something new uh, and, and retooling. Uh, very, very smart things, especially if you can responsibly create developable land. I mean, in this case, we have... We already had a community at Mountain Shadows, and we already had a resort. But by reconfiguring the course and and, uh, adjusting the footprint, um, we were able to build a bigger and stronger resort, one that will be more sustainable and more profitable. That's the hope. Um, And and there's also uh, 100 uh, high-end townhomes uh, near the resort, and the resort has a condominium component to it. And all of those things needed the golf course to give up a little bit of acreage. And and I think that the smart course owner out there, if it can be done and if there's a way to do it, there's a need to maybe create some revenue. Um, long-term revenue can be realized through leasing the land, not so much selling it off. I mean, that's something that I think many people immediately get scared about when you're talking about reconfiguring the course is we're, we're going to give up land. There are ways creatively to do it where you're not necessarily, uh, a club is not necessarily giving up land or a city municipality, let's say, giving up land as much as leasing it for another purpose. And that money can then go back in to help sustain the golf if it, if it needs a bump. I, I think that, and I've got lots of these on the drawing table right now, not just part three courses, but executive courses and retooling 36 holes into 27, 
or 18 regulation into 18 executive, all sorts of different combinations. And, you know, they're not always going to work, but it, it never hurts to look at possibilities and, and bring ideas like that to the table. So now that the Champions Tour, I believe, has an event on a part three course, you have Larry Fitzgerald already tweeting about Mountain Shadows. You're going to have Major League Baseball players in the Phoenix Scottsdale area pretty soon, and they're going to want to get their rounds in quickly before it gets dark after after their uh, bullpen sessions and batting practice sessions. Do you feel like par three golf is starting to generate some momentum, and what, what do you think the next step is? Well, I do. I think I think it's you know I mean the the idea at Mountain Shadows is it's, it's a party. You know, it's supposed to be fun. Um, you're not going to check in at what looks like a regular golf shop. Um, we're encouraging walking. The goal is to get 70 to 80 percent of the players walking in some fashion, whether it's with a push cart or a small carry bag. Ping is uh, a major um, component of the new Mountain Shadows, and, and when you come, you know they'll they'll say, uh, Mr. Cipriano, uh, I, you know, can we put a little set together for you today? And they'll give you a little ping moon bag and and load up some clubs based on your handicap, maybe give you six clubs, eight clubs, something like that, let you try out a new putter. And I don't think it's just par three courses. I think it's um, I think it's what we've called executive courses, or, or as Ron Witten, I think, once appropriately used the term precision courses, which I think he borrowed from the British Isles. But there's a, a need for that type of golf course, you know, 5,500 yards, 4,800 yards, even even just under 6,000, uh, maybe not necessarily par 72, but, you know, par 66, 65. And I think the par 3 has a place in there. Of course, what's fun about the par 3, as I said earlier, is, is, you know, you have every time you get up, you have a chance to make a hole-in-one. And I think that's the thrill and the excitement of any par 3 hole is that the player is face-to-face with the cup and the flagstick right off the tee. And, and that's what makes those holes special. And when you get them down to 80 yards, 100 yards, 120 yards, um, you know, the, the chances of the hole-in-one goes up and the chances of the birdies go up, and, and that's what makes it fun. So, it's, it, you know, we're trying to make it a party, a fun experience, um, something you can go out and play with your kids, um, husband and wife can play, uh, different generations can get together in the same group, and, and that's... You know, that's that's the idea of, of what we've tried to create here. Well, Forrest, I appreciate you taking the time, and I think I'm going to try to find a flight to, to Phoenix as soon as possible. It sounds like you've created a really fun thing, and I'm sure uh, people are going to enjoy playing it, and I'm sure it's going to create some conversations here in the industry about different types of golf courses. So thanks again for uh, joining us on Tartan Talks, and good luck with your work this winter and beyond. I appreciate it. It was fun, and right, as you said, before spring training, we're ready to go. You've been listening to the Superintendent Radio Network, the podcast of Golf Course Industry Magazine, a production of GIE Media. I've been your host, Guy Cipriano. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes or the SRN page of golfcourseindustry.com. Talk to us at srn at gie.net or at GCI Magazine on Twitter. Thanks for listening.